You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. Hidden History is an audio project of Bulletin Technologies, LLC. To learn about how you can fly for a fraction of the cost of commercial, visit bulletinflights.com. The banana is one of the most widely grown crops in the world. Over 100 million are eaten per year, 51% at breakfast. Though it may seem unbelievable, the economics and history involved in the cultivation of the banana has helped shape the modern world. On this week's episode, we'll be exploring the controversial history of the banana and the people that grow them. You're listening to Hidden History. This is episode 11. Yes, we have no bananas. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad No, not yet, my dear That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking How about me? No, no, when you are fully ripe, my dear Those little flecks of brown appear Me? You're most digestible, my friend. Delicious, too, from end to end. You can put them in a pie any way you want to eat them. It's impossible to beat them. But bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator. Bananas are a solid food that doctors now include in baby's diet. And since they are so good for baby, I think we all should try it. See, 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 see. What you just heard was an early advertisement for Chiquita Banana, a brand wholly owned by the infamous United Fruit Company that we'll talk about later in this episode. The main character of the short is an anthropomorphic banana in a red dress, a mascot that will later be replaced by the now-famous Chiquita Banana Lady, who herself was based off of the Portuguese singer Carmen Miranda. Now, I'm not going to get into the ethics of a talking banana trying to sell other bananas for human consumption. That whole deal just seems pretty traitorous. But this commercial would have been originally shown at movie theaters before the main feature, and was part of a series that greatly helped boost the popularity of the banana in the mind of the American consumer. We'll hear audio from another one later on. But if I started this episode's timeline in the 1950s, when these shorts originally aired, then I would be doing a disservice to the long history of the banana and those who want to learn about it. Bananas were originally domesticated by farmers in Southeast Asia and New Guinea between 5 and 8,000 B.C., The original incarnation of the banana is filled with large, hard seeds and is one of the thousands of varieties of banana that can still be found in the wild. In 2011, speaking to the sheer variety and biodiversity in the wild banana, New Yorker journalist Mike Peed said the following, There are fuzzy bananas whose skins are bubblegum pink, green and white striped bananas with pulp the color of orange sherbet, Bananas that, when cooked, taste like strawberries. The double Mahoy plant can produce two bunches at once. 
The Chinese name of the aromatic Gosang Huang plant means you can smell it from the next mountain. The fingers on one banana plant grow fused. Another produces a bunch of a thousand fingers, each only an inch long. Though for all this fantastic variety, almost everyone in the world eats the same type of banana, the Kandavish. And the story of how we arrived at that monoculture paints a grim picture for the future of banana production. For thousands of years, bananas were largely cultivated by the same people that ate them. And in countries like India, the primary mode of banana production is still for family or local consumption. But starting in the 14 and 1500s, the humble banana caught the interest of empire, and the Portuguese began to establish banana plantations in their colonies in Brazil, Western Africa, and the Atlantic Islands. Yet, due to the inefficiency of long-range shipping and the short shelf life of the fruit, the banana, in the grand scheme of the global diet, stayed local. And then came the Industrial Revolution. Just plain pies? Oh. Even simple Simon won't buy my pies anymore. <laughs> I'm Chiquita Banana, and I understand that your pies no longer have a big demand. If you'd like to raise the popularity, remember that bananas give variety. Take an ordinary pie shell, bake for any kind of pie. Then it only takes a minute Just to slice bananas in it Then add more of your favorite chocolate filling Cooled, of course Now flute a banana Slice and arrange on top There, a banana chocolate cream pie Oh, remember that it's easy to have different kinds of pies that use bananas. The butterscotch with vanilla. Hey, you better mind your manners. <sighs> but they're so good. That was another informational short produced by Chiquita called Chiquita Banana Helps the Pieman which was aired shortly before the catastrophic collapse of the world's most widely produced banana crop, the Gros Michel, in the 1950s. The Gros Michel, or Big Mike, literally Fat Michael in French, was brought to the Western Hemisphere in 1835 by the French botanist Jean-Francois Pouillat, and was soon the only banana being grown on massive plantations in South and Central America. Its physical characteristics made it good to ship. It had a thick skin that makes it bruise-resistant, and it grew in dense bunches, making it efficient to ship to market. Its physical characteristics made it good to ship, but the Industrial Revolution made it possible. And with the following evolution in rail and naval technology, the Big Mike became the dominant cultivar in American and European markets, which, admittedly at the time, didn't mean much. Bananas were first widely available to American consumers after the Civil War, and only in very small quantities at high prices. Soon enough, the now infamous American fruit company, United Fruit, would descend on the banana-producing nations of Central and South America, especially Puerto Rico, Honduras, and Guatemala, giving rise to the term Banana Republic. 
The United Fruit Company, formed in 1899 through a merger with a banana trading concern and the Boston Fruit Company, grew to be a near monopoly that was often accused of exploitative labor practices, bribing foreign and domestic government officials, tax evasion, violence, and ruthless and unethical business practices. Journalists throughout Latin America called United Fruit El Pulpo, or the octopus. To illustrate the sheer amount of corruption initiated by United Fruit in the American government alone, Rich Cohen, in his 2011 book, The Fish That Ate the Whale, has this to say. John Foster Dulles, who represented United Fruit while he was a law partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, he negotiated that crucial United Fruit deal with Guatemalan officials in the 1930s, was Secretary of State under Eisenhower. His brother Alan, who did legal work for the company and sat on its board of directors, was head of the CIA under Eisenhower. Henry Cavett Lodge, who was America's ambassador to the UN, was a large owner of United Fruit stock. Ed Whitman, the United Fruit PR man, was married to Anne Whitman, Dwight Eisenhower's personal secretary. You could not see these connections until you could, and then you could not stop seeing them. Some of the most publicly known infamies of United Fruit occurred in 1928, 1954, and 1975. In 1928, representatives from United Fruit and the U.S. government worked in tandem to paint a workers' strike in the small town of Cienaga, Colombia, as communist agitation with, quote, subversive tendency. And the United States threatened to send the Marines to invade Colombia if United Fruit's interests were not protected from the strikers. In response, Colombian President Miguel Mendez dispatched a regiment of the army from Bogota, the soldiers made machine-gun emplacements on the low-slung roofs of buildings around the town square and blocked street access, and after the end of a five-minute warning period, opened fire into the crowd of men, women, and children who had gathered in the square to protest after Sunday Mass. No accurate death count exists, but historians estimate the death toll to range from 47 to 2,000. According to survivors, the bodies were thrown into the sea. The murders, today known as the Banana Massacre, helped spark a period of violent rioting known as El Bogotazo, which destroyed much of downtown Bogota. These riots themselves triggered a ten-year-long Colombian civil war, which ended in 1958, 30 years after the Banana Massacre. In 1954, the people of Guatemala democratically elected a new president, Jacobo Arbenz, putting an end to a ten-year civil war. Arbenz was a moderate capitalist, but that wasn't enough to make him an ally of the United States. On June 17, 1952, the Guatemalan government passed Decree 900, more popularly known as the Agrarian Reform Law, which reappropriated uncultivated land on plots that were greater than 673 acres. Those who lost land were compensated with government bonds equal to the value of the land that the owners themselves had declared on their 1952 tax returns. But there was a problem. Not only did United Fruit play fast and loose with their taxes, but they also intentionally cultivated only 15% of their massive land holdings in order to artificially inflate the price of bananas. 
And so United Fruit, whose 1950 profits of $65 million were twice the income of the Guatemalan government, started lobbying. The Guatemalan government gave United Fruit twice what they originally paid for the 400,000 acres that were taken, and that multi-million dollar windfall was used to pay for more lobbying in Washington. Unknowingly, the Guatemalans were funding their own downfall. In 1954, under the Eisenhower administration, Operation PB Success was born. Under it, 100 CIA agents would serve to destabilize Guatemala and pave the way for the invasion of U.S.-backed dictator Castillo Armas, who would rule until his assassination in 1957 and be the first in a long line of brutal dictators that backed U.S. interests. United Fruit had beaten the government of Guatemala. On February 3, 1975, Eli Black, the president of United Brands Company, a new name adopted by United Fruit in 1970, committed suicide by jumping from the window of his 44th floor office in New York's Pan Am building. His death inspired a scene in the Coen Brothers movie The Hudsucker Proxy, but it's what was found during the investigation into his death that proved to be so controversial. It was called Bananagate by the press, a $3 million bribe to Honduran President Oswaldo Lopez Arellano, which successfully caused the government of Honduras to repeal a recently passed law that doubled the tax on a 40-pound box of bananas from 25 cents to 50 cents. The resulting repeal caused a total collapse of the Union of Banana Exporting Countries, known as UPEB. The Securities and Exchange Commission, who investigated Black's death, determined that it would have been impossible for the bribe to have been made without Eli Black's express knowledge and consent. In 1975, it wasn't illegal for American companies to bribe foreign officials, but it was to do so without telling the stockholders. When the bribery scandal was revealed, United attempted to convince the SEC to keep quiet about the revelation. They respectfully declined. When news of the bribe reached Honduras, the government was overthrown, and United's assets in Honduras were nationalized. In August 1984, United Brands Company ceased to exist, and Chiquita Brands International was formed, which continues on to this day. But if you've been listening along, you might notice something that I mentioned offhand earlier that I've never come back to. So now that we're nearing the end of the episode, it's time to talk about monoculture, Panama disease, and the death of the banana as we know it. The pre-1960 banana monoculture, ruled by the fat Michael, had one glaring flaw. Even though it was delicious and easy to ship, it was highly susceptible to Panama disease, a fungal soil disease that cuts off flow of water to the leaves, thereby exposing the plant to deadly amounts of sunlight. Due to the genetic similarity of banana plants, this disease spread like wildfire, and by 1960, banana growers could no longer produce an acceptable crop of the fat Michael. The presence of Panama disease began causing banana shortages as early as the 1920s, providing the inspiration for the 1923 chart-topper hit, Yes, We Have No Bananas. By the 60s, the Fat Michael was replaced by the banana we eat today, the Candavish, 
which is of a debatably lower quality and is more delicate, and thus far harder to ship. In 1993, a strain of Panama disease known as Tropical Race 4 was discovered, and has since wiped out the Kandavish production in a number of Southeast Asian countries. Though 25 years later it has yet to reach the Americas, we might not always be so lucky. Sometime in the near future, the fruit that we know and love might be gone in an instant. To wrap up this week's show, here's one fact that I couldn't quite fit into the flow of the script, but wanted to share anyway. Have you ever wondered why banana-flavored things never seem to quite taste like real banana? Well, when banana flavoring was first invented, it was based on the taste of the banana available at the time, the Gros Michel. And in the decades since the Fat Mike hasn't been available to the average consumer, nobody's really bothered to change the recipe. This has been by far one of my favorite episodes that I've ever had to research, write, and produce. Look for old episodes on soundcloud.com forward slash hidden history show and new live episodes every Wednesday on 88.3 FM. And so to send you off this week, the 1923 hit that stayed at the number one spot for five weeks straight. Yes, we have no bananas. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. There's a fruit store on our street, it's run by a Greek, and he keeps good things to eat, but you should hear him speak. When you ask him anything, he never answers no. He just yeses you to death. And as he takes your dough, he tells you, yes, of course, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. We've string beans and onions, kabodges and scallions, and all kinds of fruit. And say, we have an old-fashioned tomato. A Long Island potato, but yes, we have no bananas, we have no bananas today. Business got so good with him, he wrote home to say, send me Pete and Nick and Jim, I need help right away. When he got them in the store, there was fun you bet. Someone asked for sparrowgrass, and then the whole quartet all answered, Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Just buy those coconuts, those walnuts, and donuts. There ain't many nuts like they. We'll sell you two kinds of red herring, dark brown and ball bearing. But yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. You got a strawberry pie? Yes, I don't think we got strawberry pie. You got coconut pie? Yes, I don't think we got coconut pie. I'll have one cup of coffee. We got no coffee. Well, what do you got? I got a banana. Oh, you got a banana. Yes. We got an old banana, no banana, no banana. We got an old banana today, I tell you, an old banana. Hey, Mariana, you got an old banana? 
Well, did the man eat or believe what I say? Now, what do you want, Miss Sir? You want to buy a twelve for a quarter? No? Well, just a moment, I'm going to call her my daughter. Hey! Marianne, you got a banana? No? Yes. Banana? No? Yes, no, no. No, no banana today. No banana today. 